alone that we stand today, that we can have our life and even our worship today. Scripture reading this morning is taken from Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 8, and I shall read to you. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let us now seek the Lord in prayer as we listen to His Word. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, once again for giving us the time where your church can gather. We gather, Lord, to praise your name, to seek you in prayer, and now also, Lord, to listen to the preaching of your word. Again, we commit the preacher to your hands as we seek, Lord, to bring your word to your people, that you will be pleased to use him as your instrument, as your mouthpiece, Lord, to declare your word to your people, no clarity and all conviction that your Holy Spirit will also plant your word deeply in our, into our hearts, that we may receive your word in meekness and in faith, that your word may bring forth much fruit for your glory. So help us, O Lord, in our learning, for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dearly beloved brethren, friends, if you have received God's gift of salvation, you are in a you are a new creation. And there's simply no way you can receive God's gift of salvation, of eternal life, and have your sin washed in the blood of Christ and go on living as you formerly lived. By his sovereign grace alone, God raised you from being dead in your sins and in your trespasses. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a new understanding of the truth. And he brought you personally to know him, the living and true God. You have seen God's grace and personified in Christ. How God's grace saves, God's grace Sanctify and God's grace glorify His people. Last week, now God's grace 
leaves you a different person than you were before. God's grace triumphs and all seem lost and hopeless. But at the same time, there are forces at work that cause you, cause me to go back to our old ways. The world promises you full satisfaction with all its pleasure apart from God. The flesh tempts you from within, promising you fulfillment if you will yield to temptation. And the devil waylays you with his traps. These powerful forces make you tend to forget what God has done in our hearts by his grace alone. And so we need to be reminded again and again of how God's grace has laid hold of our lives and how God's grace has a claim on our lives now, master of our lives now. So in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, the Apostle Paul gave Titus and Aquitan Christians some timeless reminders of how God's grace impacts their lives, of how God's grace would impact their lives as well and our lives as well. His concern is the church's weakness in the ungodly world. It is still relevant for us. We live in a culture that exalts sin and despises God. And there is an increasingly militant mood against the people of God who holds to godly standards, as laid out for us in the, in the scriptures. Now, how should we respond? And we know that the world needs the gospel. And only the gospel can change human hearts. But how do we gain a hearing for the gospel among a people who mock God and his people? Paul's answer is that we must be godly. We must be graceful and in short, be Christ-like in the world. Being reminded of God's grace that changed us will motivate us to show His grace and His love to others. And in our passage today, Paul highlighted three reminders, at least three reminders I can see from the text for the greeting Christians as well as for us. Three timeless reminders. Reminder number one, that is how you are to act towards this ungodly world. We read that from verse 1 to verse 2. You have noticed by now that the things that Paul taught here were not new truth to the Christian Christians and to us. They had already been taught these things. If you have been a Christian for some time, they are not new to you as well. But Paul felt the need to remind his children in the faith of these basic truths, basic way that they needed to behave in relation to this godless world. A Bible scholar writes, and I quote, The Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authorities. They were constantly involved in insurrections, murder, and 
Kerber War, end quote. This sounds familiar. Sounds like us. Sounds like modern men too, isn't it? First of all, the first reminder of how we are to act towards this ungodly world is Christians are to submit, are to obey and to ready to do good to rulers and authorities. This is the consistent apostolic teaching about how Christians must relate to their rulers and authorities. We can read that from Romans chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, and also 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Although Paul lived under the tyrannical as well as ungodly Roman Empire, he did not make exceptions for such governments. The only time Christians are required to disobey secular governments is when the government commands us to do something that will require us to disobey God and to sin. At that point, we must obey God rather than man and perhaps suffer punishment from the government. Of course, it is easier, easier to submit, to obey, and to do good to rulers and authorities who take care of his people, who hand out CDC vouchers, who hand out GST rebates, who give us, who give the pioneers of our land huge discount on their medical bills. It's easier to submit, right, and to obey such government, and even to speak well and to do good to them. A government who rule justly and who punish the lawbreakers, whoever they are. See, when I taught this subject recently at a seminar for campus Christian leaders in a cafe in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, the cafe just opposite the university, is a frequent meeting place for the university students to go to the cafe for their meetings. See, when I taught that subject at a, at a short seminar, well, the rest of the student leaders were nodding their head because yeah, they respect me. They will not contest every point which I say. But my most, but my most gentle and meek daughter in the faith, the campus ministry worker, raised her eyebrows and then disagreed with me vehemently. Only she dared to disagree with me because she's my daughter. You see, it is so difficult to submit and to obey, and not to mention to do good to rulers and authorities in many parts of the world. The court did not call for the overthrow of the Roman Empire to protect the many Christians who were being persecuted and martyred for their faith. Paul says, through divine inspiration, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1b, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And in, another, and in another pastoral letter, Paul wrote under inspiration too, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, Paul urged Timothy as well as the church too, to pray that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people 
for kings and for all who are in high positions. Why? That we may live or they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, our gospel witness requires us to submit and obey rulers and authorities. This does not mean that we cannot voice our disagreement with ungodly legislation and do what is lawful and God-honoring to oppose them. But we must show respect for our rulers and authorities as individuals and respect for the office that they had and they hold. We must obey the law of the land unless those laws require us to disobey the law of God. Secondly, we are to speak no evil of speak evil of no man. Again, it is easy to get frustrated with our rulers and authorities when they started to increase our taxes and our COE prices. And to react by misrepresenting what they say or did. But that is to speak evil and malign the person and the authorities. Or if a colleague wronged you in some way, the human tendency is to build your case against him by running him down immediately. We also have the tendency to gossip behind our neighbors when we heard them quarrel late into the night. It happens in HDB flat. I don't know about private household dwellers. It always happens. And when a, cry, a child is crying deep into the night, first thing in our mind is that that neighbor don't know how to take care of their baby. They must be abusing and not feeding their baby well. That's why the baby cries deep into the night. But you know, it is not keeping our tongue in check. And that dishonor the Lord. We are also to be peaceable and gentle to all. Now the NASB translated quarreling in our text as uncontentious, which is more accurate. It's not just being quarrelsome, it's being there's also the negative part of, or positive part of being uncontentious. The driving motivation is being uncontentious and not really to stop quarreling. The Greek word is amacho. A-macho. A-macho means not macho. It's not always good to be macho. To be macho is to be contentious. To show off your muscles in the wrong sense. So as Christians, we do need to act in a macho fashion for macho sake. We're trying to prove that no one can shove us around, that we shouldn't take offense easily. Instead, we should be peaceable, uncontentious, peaceable to all. The Greek word for gentle has the nuance of not standing up for your rights. That is also another high order, tall order that we have to bear in mind. Not only must we not, not only must we be amateur, we must also be 
we must be prepared not to stand for our rights. See, when you do so, it may or it may scatter a relationship. When your way are standing for your rights, it will eventually scatter a relationship. And there are situations where to stand on your rights would cause such damage towards anyone. And he would not want to hear about you or even about your saviour. It is far more important in such cases to absorb the wrong and to keep the door open for a gospel witness. To sum it up, a Christian is to show consideration for all men. The word consideration is the word that is better translated as gentleness or meekness. It is a fruit of the Spirit we are talking about here. It does not mean weakness, but rather strength under control. So again, the theme of self-control comes out again in this passage. It is use of a horse that is brought under control so that it submits to its master. I don't know whether you've ever seen a horse, a real horse before in your life. It's a huge thing. In Pastorish Park, Car Park C, there's this stable where, or gables where the, you have this uh, pony ride. You think a pony is a small thing, right? But when I was standing right in front of the pony, wow, it's quite big, you know. Taller than me. And when you grouch, you can be quite uh, fearsome, in the commas. You may kick. It's bad kick can easily, easily hurt anyone. So when you... So the word here is used of a horse, even of a pony. They saw under control. And once you brought the pony under control, you can put a child on the pony and make him walk one round, two round, three round. The idea here is that in all our dealings with outsiders, we should be under the control of the Holy Spirit, responding graciously and kindly even when wrong. Paul gives the best example. He has been judged wrongly in the Jewish courts, in even in the courts of uh, of the uh, governor of uh, 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 I say Palestine, you know, Judea. So what did he do? He used his rights in a controlled manner. He said, "I will appeal to Caesar." He appealed to Caesar. That is, he knows that's the best way to respond to all the wrongful accusations of the Jewish leaders. Passport says that we who have been changed by God's grace should be gracious citizens and neighbors toward those who do not know Christ. Reminder number two. Paul wants to remind us 
that we, you, were once, you once were just like the ungodly people of the world. Mentioned last week, in order for us to know the, the greatness, the vastness of God's grace, we know, we, mu- we must know how sinful we are, the depth of our sin, and how God's grace saves us from the depth of our sin. And we were once, we were once things, you know, under condemnation. Now verse 3 begins with 4. And it shows the logical connection between verse 2 and 3. It is easy to become angry and impatient with unbelievers who, who act selfishly, who act sinfully. But if we want to behave as godly people towards them, then we need to remember that before we met Christ, we act in the same way, in exactly the same way, and even worse way than these people. Unbelievers are living for themselves. That's all that they know how to do before we met Christ. We met, we live for ourselves too, don't we? Note that Paul includes himself in this, in this description. We also. Number one, we were foolish and disobedient. We were without, we were without spiritual wisdom or understanding. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We were under the regime of the devil. We were enemies of God. We often say in our heart that there is no God. We are the God of our life, the master of my own soul. We did not know God, and so our foolish hearts was, were darkened. We thought that we were wise, but we were fools. We did not obey God, and we only obey the laws of the land when it was convenient or when we fear the consequence of getting caught. We were living for ourselves and whatever further our interests. We hated the thought of submission or obedience to any authority, including our parents and, of course, God. Secondly, we were deceived. We did not understand spiritual truth and thus were led astray by the enemy of the soul. We thought that we were wise and scientific to believe in evolution. We thought that we were sophisticated enough to throw off God's standard of moral priority. We thought that we could find happiness and fulfillment through the lust and passions of the flesh. We thought we could be happy by accumulating more material wealth. We thought that we could violate God's law without any consequences. But we were deceived. We could never quench our spiritual thirst by drinking from the wells of salt water of the world. Can you quench your thirst by drinking salt water? Even though even 70% of the earth is covered with water. But the truth is, how percent of the earth is covered with land? Because underneath the seawater is actually land. You don't, don't catch a joke. It's okay. But can you drink, can you quench your thirst with salt water? You can't, right? Not even with breakfast water. 
yucky water. But we thought we can quench our thirst, fulfill our hunger by drinking the salt water and the oil and eating it. The fact is, the more we drink of it, the thirstier we get. The more we are deceived. Thirdly, we were enslaved by our passions and pleasures. Sin, like an, like an addictive drugs, for some of us, like coffee, always enslaved the one who dabbles with it. At first, it seems as if it will meet your needs. At first, it seems pleasurable. Sexual gratification feels good. Drugs makes you feel good. Drinking downs the pain of problems and pleasure. Dishonest business, dishonest business practices may help you to get rich soon and fast. And money can buy all sorts of pleasures and friends as well. But all of these things enslave you and ultimately destroy you. What's more, we spend our lives in malice. Malice means ill will towards others. It stems from selfishness and wanting our own way. Even it means harming someone to get it. If you must lie about a colleague to get him fired or get him demoted, if you have to cheat someone out of something to get what you want, and if you have to spread nasty rumours to make your classmates look bad, well, that is malice. We spend our lives also in envy. Envy means wanting what someone else has or desiring to be in the position that they are in. It is closely related to greed and covetousness. Remember, envy led Ahab and Jezebel to kill Naboth to take his vineyard. Even though they have plenty full of vineyards in the land, they still cover that one piece. Envy led the Pharisees to kill Jesus ultimately because he was gaining more followers than they had. That's quite getting more popularity than the Pharisees had. We were also hateful. Very few will admit that they are hateful because we like to be, we like to flatter ourselves as being loving people. But hatred is essentially self-centeredness and disregard for others' feelings and needs. If someone hurts me and I respond by thinking or saying, he can just drop dead. Or in Chinese, that is hatred to the very core, isn't it? Sometimes we, we are not mindful of this. The anger is burning our heart. We are all marked by hatred before we came to Christ because we all live for ourselves and were indifferent toward others unless they could meet our needs. Now, maybe you are thinking, well, I was, I was never like this terrible description in verse 3. But if you know your heart and your heart of hearts, which I'm afraid you may not know because our heart is deceitful, 
above all things. He can also deceive us. But if you know your heart, as God sees it, every one of these things was lurking just below the surface. The truth is, on the heart level, we all have violated every one of the Ten Commandments. As Jesus said, anger is murder in God's sight, and lust is adultery. We all have stolen, lied, and coveted. We have all practiced hypocrisy, trying to impress others that we are better than we know we are. Why is verse 3 in our text? It is there because Paul knows that in order for us to act with love and grace towards unbelievers, to those who mistreated us, to those who malign us, those who falsely accuse us, we need to remember, we need to be reminded that we used to be like them, like they are. Basically, we are made of the same stuff. If not for the grace of God. We are made of the same stuff. If not for the grace of God. We will be if not for the grace of God, we will still be acting like them. Reminder number three. From you can read that from verse four to verse seven. Let me summarize in just one sentence. That is, salvation is of the Lord. Now verse 4 to verse 6 contains two of the most glorious buts in Scripture. Verse 4 reads, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Apostle Paul wants to remind the Cretan Christians and all believers down the ages that salvation is of the Lord. First of all, we were saved by God's love, grace, and mercy. We have been reminded time and again in scriptures and we have been that we have been saved by God's love, grace and mercy. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, that God predestined and chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world in love for his glory. Such wondrous love. Such glorious wonder and mystery of predestination. Who can comprehend it? No, not one. And God chose us before the foundation of the world, not based on our good works or how we will respond to the gospel. God chose us according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, 
God will have mercy on whom He have mercy, and God will have compassion on whom He have compassion. It is God's love, grace, and His mercy manifested in the salvation of sinners. Secondly, we were saved by Christ our Savior. Verse 6 tells us that God poured out His salvation for His people through Christ. And we are also justified by grace and by faith in Christ. As the passage tells us. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to verse 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Son of God became a son of man. So that the sons of men can become the sons of God. Christ came to die on the cross in our place to purchase the salvation for his people, for each of his people. Our sins, the sin of his people are laid upon him. He's punished and he paid the full penalty of our every sin when we come to him in faith and in repentance. Christ himself say in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It is the reason for Christ's coming. This is the reason for Christmas. Christ came to die on the cross for the sin of his people and Christ paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain and Christ washed it white as snow. Thirdly, we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. As our text says, the washing, regeneration, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The washing here does not refer to baptism as some advocate. It simply refers to the washing power, the power of being washed, of sins are being washed away. And at the same time, we are also being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Verse 5b tells us that we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we are dead in sins and in trespasses. We are dead men. Dead men, there's no life in dead men at all. Sinners do not possess any breath or spiritual life. The Holy Spirit breathed in us that very breath of life. May we may be born again or regenerate. Regenerate it. Genesis all over again. Regeneration from death to life. To be a new creation in Christ. Only then could we repent from our sin and turn to Christ in faith. Remember, regeneration precedes repentance and faith. We cannot be born again. We cannot come to know the Lord unless we are born again. So regeneration followed by 
faith and repentance to live salt in Christ. You have seen in this short passage, and it will take many, many weeks to preach through this passage, but we can see in this short passage that the triune God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. No doubt about it. This precious and life-saving, rather eternal life-saving, scriptural truth was recovered by the 16th century Reformation after being buried by centuries of church traditions. The church just remembered the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation last Sunday. It is a good occasion to remember and to rejoice in the precious Reformation heritage by reminding ourselves that the triune God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. The 21st century church, yes, even the Reformed and confessional church, need to be reminded because time and again, the church has let this scriptural truth slip by hand. Sadly, within three generations after Calvin's Reformation in Geneva, the truth is lost. It never survived through even the fourth generation. And same thing in UK, after less than a generation of Reformation, the Puritans have to come and reform the church, of course, in their own, in their local parish. And we're coming down to our time, this truth has been lost. Recover again, lost, recover again. I must pay tribute to an, uh, or to an organization, a simple book publisher called Banner of Truth Trust, 1950s, after World War II, all is lost. Even MedPad is being dispersed by the war. No church of good standing, of good size standing remains. No church of reform as well as confessional good standing remains in UK, except for Westminster Chapel and a few others. But this Daniel Truth Trust decided to republish the old books. Because old books, no. Because the, the parsonages, all the, the houses where the old pastors live have been selling off and their books also go. So they collected all the old books to put inside a storeroom in a, at a, in fact, a small house in the, in the corner of the field. And then they start to take out books one by one and republish them. And that sparked off what I would call the revival of the Reformed faith as well as the doctrines of grace. Started off that way, of course, thereafter the movement continues on to our day. But are we but remember, we are forgetful and we are a neglectful people. We have taken all this truth for granted for a very long time. It's good for our church, small as we are, to continue to rehearse the doctrines of grace as enshrined in our confession, in our catechism. 
as taught by the scriptures. Amen. Contend earnestly for the faith that is given to us, that we may continue to hold fast the forms of sound words, and not to let it slip by again. Now what shall we say to all these things? Verse 8 of our text reminded us, or Paul reminded us in verse 8, that the doctrines of grace must be preached in season and out of season. He used the word insist on these things. Insist, tell Titus and the children Christians and Christians down the ages insist on teaching these things. Do not let it slip by your hands again. Important for us. It's unpopular now to do so. The church at large, even evangelical church, yes, even reform and confessional church, has a they're quite adverse to doctrine or doctrinal preaching and even teaching. Of course, practical Christian living have their place. Discipleship have their place. But without the doctrinal foundation they will lose their moorings too, by and by. So we need to preach. We need to preach the doctrine of grace, to teach the doctrine of grace, and to insist on these things. Also, the doctrines of grace must be practiced. It's not just an intellectual uh, piece of document that we are going to study when we study the Westminster Confession of Faith, for that matter. It's not just a just, just to tickle our minds, <coughs> just to fulfill our intellectual powers. No, the doctrine of grace is practical, very practical. And that's what Paul is driving at. You, you insist on these things, you'll be good for us too. What does verse 8 says? if you insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Wow. Right doctrine leads to right living, and right doctrine will lead to good works for God's glory. So exercise yourself as you learn the doctrines of grace by and by to good works that glorify God. Good Christian service in the calling which the Lord has called you to in church and also in the community. That is something whereby we need to be reminded of. It's Paul seeking to, to do so in this passage. And thirdly, the same verse tells us the doctrines of grace should motivate, should motivate us to excel in good works for God's glory. It's not just do good works per se, but to excel for God's glory. And there's something whereby, again, the church needs to be reminded that the Christian life or Christian faith is not an intellectual exercise per se. 
It is a physical exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. Where the Holy Spirit not only regenerate us, but the Holy Spirit continue to empower us, to indwell in us, that we may serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve God, who is the God of our salvation. And serve the Lord in your calling. In the church, right, giving you gifts. Gifts that will build up the body of Christ. It's not merely all hands on deck, per se, but really the Lord will want you to, you to use your spiritual gifts for His glory. If not, if you are lost to the body of Christ, if you are not doing it, and also in the community, a good, a good way to do so is, a good way to start off is really to be submissive, to submit and to obey our rulers and uh, authorities, and also to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, something Paul would want us to do, or want the Christian Christian to do, for God's glory. So may the Lord help us in the exercise of the doctrine of grace, for his glory.